All right, well, I wanna just join with Freddie in saying a big welcome to you. It is really cool that we can continue to meet like this and knowing that the vast majority of us are sitting in our homes, maybe with your small group or your family. Uh, but if you're not aware of it, also that we've got eight weekend gatherings now, which have been really good to be able to be together with God's people. Six here at Downs Road, two over in Mission. And starting in September, we also are gonna be meeting at Central Abbotsford. And our Sunday night service is gonna start again in September. So you'll have more opportunities to gather together with groups of 50. And uh, we really look forward to that, but appreciate your uh, continuing to tune in and to join us. As we're studying the book of Proverbs, I think you know that. And so you wanna have your Bibles open to chapter 15 as we dig into this particular chapter out of the wisdom literature. Proverbs is one of five books known as wisdom books. And they are collections of short sayings, of wise sayings, principles to live by. Uh, not necessarily promises, but guidelines. Uh, James Neuheiser says this in his commentary, Do you want to have a joyous and fruitful marriage? Do you want to enjoy success in raising your children? Do you want to prosper in your career? Do you want to have fulfilling relationships with others? Do you want to learn how to speak with wisdom and grace? Study the Proverbs and learn to live by them. You see, the Proverbs are not promises, they're not guarantees, but they are principles that shine light on our path. And every culture has them. Uh, around the world, there are sayings that get passed on from one generation to the next. If, if you know American history at all, you'll know Benjamin Franklin was famous for his many one-liners. Uh, he recorded many of them in Poor Richard's Almanac from year to year. Some of them you may still remember today. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Financial management. Franklin said, if you take care of the pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. Uh, he was a deist. In other words, he believed in God. He believed in the creator, but he believed the creator started the world and then just left it to run on its own. And so one of his sort of religious sayings was this, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, I've laughed at that one over the years because I bumped into a lot of people who actually think that's in the Bible. And it's not. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, probably his most familiar, at least today, that has been passed on, you know, two, three hundred years later. Still, you will hear it on the sports field or in academia and in every gym where guys are punching weights is no pain, no gain. That was Benjamin Franklin. Uh, one of my favorite uh, childhood memories or teenage memories was a proverb I learned from a boss when I had my first real job, quote unquote, 14 years old, cleaning movie theaters for janitorial service on the weekend. And my boss was this crusty World War II veteran. Uh, deep inside, he was a teddy bear. He was a gentleman underneath. He loved the Lord. He was part of church, but the outside was pretty rough and crusty. And he had one lines of wisdom all to go. But the one I remember most, he said it to me often, was, Mark, never marry for money. But where there's money, look for love. <laughs> so we're a culture that loves uplifting, positive, you-can-do-it type promises. In fact, there's an entire industry built up around motivational speakers who continue to call out the best from within us. Uh, if you've strolled through the self-help aisle at any bookstore, you will know there's a continuous stream of new titles year after year, recipes for success. They plaster them all over posters and t-shirts and coffee mugs. 
And it's great as far as it goes, because I think probably all of us can use a little encouragement from time to time. But also, if you're like I am, I think sometimes you also need a dose of reality. Because we know fundamentally that you can't be a winner all the time. Not everyone can win always. By the very definition of the word winner means there have to be losers. So one of my favorite websites is a website called despair.com. The subtitle to it or sort of their tagline is this, a little truth to lighten your day. Because the realist in us knows that life doesn't always turn out the way we want. I'd love to share a few of these uh, words of encouragement with you, if you can see these. Work. When I was told I had to pull my weight around here, I didn't realize that that included everyone else's. Or this one, fragility. Inside every snowflake is a perfectly unique meltdown just waiting to happen. Ambition, love this one. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very badly. Or here's a good one, motivation, since we're talking about motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job the kind that robots will soon be doing. (laughs) Now, you will look at that website and you think, okay, it's either cynical or very negative, or if your sense of humor is like mine, you'll say it's a good dose of reality, and I need that from time to time. Woven through the book of Proverbs is this counterintuitive theme that sometimes the words that we need most are actually hard words. Words of life, words of truth, but nevertheless, they're words that are confrontational. And the key question we've got to ask ourselves is, how do I respond to words of correction? And see, the reason that question is critical is because we're told over and over that the path to wisdom, the path to knowledge, is a path that is filled with correction. In fact, 2 Timothy 3 says, this is why the scriptures were given to us. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we're given the scriptures. Now, the teaching and the training part sounds pretty good, but the rebuking and the correcting part is more difficult. How do we respond to rebuke? And how we respond to it determines in large degree our designation according to our series, as the witless or the wise, the foolish or the wise. What Proverbs tells us is that knowledge is a gift, but being wise or being foolish is a choice. No one just stumbles into the category of fool by accident. The designation of fool is a title that we earn. You see, lack of knowledge in and of itself doesn't mean somebody's a fool. It just means that they're ignorant. They don't have knowledge. A child is naive, a child is pure, a child is ignorant, but we wouldn't say that that makes that child a fool, they just don't have the knowledge. Along life's journey, they pick up knowledge, formally and informally. Parents and teachers, coaches and instructors, life's experiences, the good and the bad. So as a kid, you learn, don't touch the red burner on the stove. Don't lick the frozen swing set on the playground. Don't grab the electric wire with your bare hands. Don't eat yellow snow. The fool, by definition, 
is the person who's no longer ignorant. They're no longer naive. They're no longer innocent. They have knowledge, but they choose to not follow that knowledge. They willingly choose to disregard the knowledge they have. Romans 1 is a sobering text. It speaks of the wrath of God being poured out on the rebelliousness, the foolishness of humanity. But as you read the context, you realize it's not for lack of knowledge that the Lord is judging. It's precisely the opposite. It's the rejection of knowledge. Because that chapter says we have no excuse before God. He has made himself known to us through creation, through the written word, through the spirit of God, through the people of God. But we have suppressed that truth. And Romans 1.21 says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It dovetails so well with Psalm 14 verse 1 that says, despite the evidence, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Despite creation, despite scripture, despite the promptings of the spirit, there is no God. So the overarching message of Proverbs is simply this. We have a choice. We have a choice to make. We can pursue wisdom or we can reject wisdom. You can become wise or you can become a fool. And it all hinges on this one concept. What do we do with the truth that we've learned? How do I break a habit? Uh, you may have heard the conversation with an addict. How did you break that bad habit? How did you break that addiction? And the story went like this. I walked down the road and I fell in a hole. I walked down that same road and I fell in the hole again. I walked down that road and I stepped around the hole. But finally, I walked down a different road. You see, do we learn from life's experiences? And it's hard to imagine that anyone would willingly choose folly over wisdom, that we would willingly walk down a road that leads to pain and destruction. But sadly, if you're like me, you know that left to ourselves, it's indeed the bent of the human heart. And we have to ask ourselves, then, well, how do I avoid the path of the fool? And where do I go for great advice? And what do I do with that advice once it's given to me? What will I do with correction, with rebuke, with words of reproof? Am I willing to listen to life-giving advice? According to Proverbs, the fool isn't interested in constructive input. If you scroll through the book and just cherry pick a few key phrases about the fool. Proverbs 10, it says, he rejects reproof. Proverbs 12, he hates correction. Proverbs 13, he disregards discipline. Proverbs 15, earlier in the text, he leaves the path of life. In Proverbs 5, there's a longer chunk and it's dad talking to his son and saying, and at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline, my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. Our focus today is that one little word that is sprinkled throughout this book, the word reproof or correction or rebuke, depending on the translation that you're reading. And we're using Proverbs 15 verses 31 to 33 as our starting point. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to just verse by verse run through chapter 15, 31 to 33. So verse 31 says this, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. 
Whoever heeds life-giving correction. Remember that Proverbs was written predominantly to instruct the young and the naive. The first nine chapters specifically, a father's advice, a mother's wisdom. Listen up. Mom and dad are for you. We want to see you flourish in life. And so we're giving you some advice that is going to save you a ton of pain if you follow it. You're going to make a home for yourself. You're going to build a life one decision at a time. And if you want a home in the Sophia Hills subdivision, then take our advice. Listen to counsel. Humble yourself enough to learn from others. Be willing to be corrected and understand that there is so much about life that you don't yet know. If you scan through that text, look at these comments. Verse 31, whoever heeds life-giving correction, or the ESV says the ear that listens. And we got to note there that there is a difference between hearing and heeding. The NIV says whoever heeds. So it's not just hearing the words, it's heeding the words. James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You see, it's not just taking in information. It's not just growing in knowledge. It's not just physically hearing the words. Heeding the words means I actually take them to heart. I ponder them. I reflect on them. And then I put them into action. I don't know about you, but I know for me, often my first response to criticism or correction is to try to deflect or defend or dismiss it, explain ourselves, justify ourselves, defend ourselves. Hard words are called hard words for a reason. They're hard. And often we push back against them. But notice the phrase because it's important. It says a particular kind of correction, life-giving correction. You see, not all criticism is equal. We need to acknowledge that. There are words that are actually simply unkind. They're harsh words. They're caustic words that are actually intended to hurt. Uh, Churchill is one of my favorite historical characters. Uh, he was known for a very quick wit and a sharp tongue. And sometimes his sharp tongue was actually hurtful. One of the most famous stories was the no love lost between him and Bessie Braddock, who was the first woman elected to, as a member of parliament. They had an ongoing feud between the two of them. And at one party, apparently, Bessie comes to him and says, Sir Winston, I find you disgusting. You are drunk. To which he immediately replied, Bessie, you're right. I am drunk, but you are ugly. And in the morning, I shall be sober. Now, those words might be funny, but they're hurtful. That's not what this text is speaking about. The focus here is on life-giving words. The, the New Living Translation actually calls it constructive criticism. You see, hard words may be, but they're not meant to harm us. They're meant to help us. Proverbs 27 turns it this way. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that phrase in verse 17 is a powerful image that one person can actually sharpen another person's life. A friend who is not afraid of a few sparks in your relationship. Knowing that for the axe to be sharpened, 
The grindstone has to be applied. I remember this so well as a little kid, probably five or six years old, going down into the basement with my dad. He was getting ready to chop some wood. He took the ax to the grindstone and he applied it to the grindstone. And this spray of sparks went up from the grindstone. And I remember as a kid jumping back, I was afraid. And my dad just pressed in. And so you learn as a kid, okay, it's not, uh, it's not unsafe. But I watched the sparks fly off of that ax. And then you realize that to sharpen that instrument, a few sparks had to fly. And the question is, do we have people in our lives that we can share hard words with and even sparky words? And sadly, our culture is increasingly telling us that anyone who disagrees with you should be seen as an enemy. No longer are they simply people with a different opinion or a rival disposition. No longer should we engage in vibrant public debate, but competing voices should be silenced. In fact, we have even coined a new phrase in the last decade or so in North America. It's called the cancel culture. I don't know if you heard it. The cancel culture. Any voice that you find personally offensive should not only just be ignored, but they should actively be shut up and shut down. They should be silenced. They should be canceled. That's where we get that phrase from. Tim Keller faced this in 2017. He was invited by Princeton Theological Seminary to speak to their students, and he was going to receive the Abraham Kuyper Award for Academic Excellence in Reformed Theology. But that's not what happened. When the word got out on campus that Keller was coming to speak, a protest was raised because Keller didn't affirm all the beliefs that all the students affirmed, particularly two issues. His position on traditional marriage was different than many of theirs, and his views on the ordination of women was different than some of theirs. Now, it didn't matter that neither of those topics were what he was going to speak on. In the end, the Princeton University compromised with the protesters. They rescinded the award. He did not receive the award, but they allowed the speech to go forward, much to the chagrin of many students and alumni. Now, I, I put myself into that story, and I, I'm thinking, what seminary in North America would turn down an audience with Tim Keller? Is there any seminary that would not want him to speak? But our canceled culture is becoming so common for speakers to be shouted down and shut down. Uh, we're not going to go down the path. I don't have time. But if you want a provocative read on this topic, a, a book that came out a couple years ago, The Coddling of the American Mind. And it traces from a secular point of view how universities have this mindset now of keeping our students safe means that we have to protect them from words that they don't want to hear. And so if any speaker disagrees or triggers or hurts or offends students, they should be canceled. It's beginning to feel like censorship of free speech. Again, that's not our topic, but it's an interesting read. It raises these questions, however. When did we lose our appetite for robust debate? When did we lose our ability to disagree agreeably? To hear another person's point of view, even if we don't agree with their conclusion. When did we become so fragile that anyone who doesn't affirm all that I affirm is now considered an enemy? To be rejected, silenced, banished from the public square, canceled. When did this happen? Paul writes some really hard letters. You'll know that if you've read the New Testament. In fact, most of his letters were written to correct problems in churches. 
One of his most challenging letters is the letter written to the Galatian church. Uh, Some have called it his fighting words letter. And he is battling against works righteousness that has infiltrated the church and is trying to do do away with righteousness by faith in Jesus alone. It's a very hard letter. Some of the most direct language that Paul ever uses, some find his language harsh. It even, it borders on vulgarity in a couple spots. But in the middle of the letter, Paul appeals to the relationship that he has with the Galatians. And he reminds me, he says, when I came to your village, I was sick when I came to your village. I came to you in weakness. I was laid up and you took me in. You cared for me. You received me with generous hospitality. And you can almost hear the pain in his voice when he asks the next question in chapter 4, verse 16. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's a provocative question. I think that would be a good question to put on a poster or a coffee mug or a t-shirt. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Proverbs 15, 32, the next verse. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. You see, instead of buying a lot in Sophia Hills and building a home on Wisdom Boulevard, the fool disregards discipline. And ultimately, they despise themselves. They do themselves harm. And it's here where we have to stop and think clearly that to become a fool is to choose to be a fool. Uh, James Neuheiser again says this, foolishness is not merely a mental defect. Rather, folly is a moral deficiency. That's an important distinction. It's not a mental defect. It's not for lack of knowledge. It's not for the ability to comprehend. It's a moral deficiency, which leads to all kinds of disasters and sins. Fools are unteachable because they are proud. Oz Guinness says this, A fool is the practical atheist who has no fear of the Lord and roundly refuses to acknowledge God in practice. I mean, we could summarize it and we could say things like this. A fool is a person who refuses to put into practice information that would ultimately benefit them. We could do it in very practical terms of life. You go to the doctor and the doctor says to you, you need to change your diet. You need to reduce your alcohol and sugar consumption. You need to stop smoking. You need to get some more exercise. The wise person listens to the doctor, takes the advice to heart. The fool says, thanks very much, doc. Great thoughts, but I think I'll just keep living the way I'm living. You see, a fool hears the words. A fool gains the knowledge, but refuses to put them into practice. A fool isn't just naive. A fool isn't just ignorant. A fool, at heart, is a rebel. As Neuheiser said, an unteachable because they are proud. I first heard these words at a pastor's conference. The speaker was challenging pastors to not shy away from difficult, challenging issues in our times that were addressed in God's words. And he used this phrase, hard words produce soft hearts. Soft words produce hard hearts. It really stuck in my mind. Hard words produce soft hearts. Soft words produce hard hearts. Now, maybe there's an exception to every rule. But you know that it is a well-documented fact that the church in North America is in a freefall. 
The fastest growing religious demographic in North America are called the nuns, no religious affiliation. And add to the nuns another group called the duns, people who were part of some religion but have walked away. The nuns and the duns make up an growing, increasing size of Canadian population. The three largest Protestant denominations in Canada are closing literally thousands of churches. United Church, Anglican Church, and Presbyterian Church are all planning for the end of their denominations. But as you know, not every statistic tells the entire story. And what's buried in the middle of what looks like a lot of negative press is a little reported factoid. I like that word, factoid. That the more conservative a church is in its life, its doctrine, and its view of scripture, and its lifestyle implications, the more likely it is that that church is growing. In fact, in 2017, there was a study in southern Ontario that caught the attention of the national press and was reprinted in Christianity Today magazine. And they stated this, that there was one wing of the church that was not in free fall the wing they called conservative Protestants, the wing that we would call evangelicals. Evangelicals who focus on the Bible, who focus on Jesus, who focus on life change, and who focus on getting the message out. Churches that still hold to key doctrines of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Churches that continue to believe that the word of God is actually the word of God. That the Bible was meant to be taken seriously, that God was God, is God, and we are not. That the laws given for human flourishing are for our good and that they're still true today. That the Bible's sexual ethics, its view on the sanctity of life, its politically incorrect agenda on so many social agendas is precisely what our world needs to hear. Hard words. Those churches are bucking the trend. Hard words creating the desired effect in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls who are getting on their knees before their creator in a word and in a practice that we don't hear much about today. The word is repenting. Saying to the Lord, I was wrong. Now, just a quick sidebar. As crazy as our culture has become, there are some hopeful signs even in the secular culture. In the midst of our cultural craziness and the -the over-the-top political correctness, more and more young adults are clamoring for voices of truth, voices of reason, voices basically of common sense. More are realizing that the worldview that they have been taught, received by their parents, their university profs, is simply not working. Our world is coming unhinged. And there's so many illustrations that we could point to on the secular front, but just one powerful Canadian illustration is the meteoric rise of popularity of a voice like Jordan Peterson. Now, if you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, he has written the book, the closest thing that we might call to a Canadian book of Proverbs. The book's entitled 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, written from a secular point of view. Peterson was a University of Toronto, is a University of Toronto professor who dared to stand up against our politically correct, woke culture and to call what he considered to be BS by its name, BS. But he did so with the credibility of a PhD behind his name and well-reasoned intellectual, historical, and rational arguments that his liberal colleagues didn't know what to do with. 
And his 12 Rules for Life became an overnight bestseller. He went on a road tour, a book tour, originally 12 city book tour that turned into 160 cities around the globe, sold out audiences, largely young adults who seemingly were hungry for somebody to simply talk uncommon common sense. You wouldn't think that any book with the title Rule would sell in our culture today, but it is sold by the millions. Young adults around the world are clamoring to hear this uncommon sense message. And what authors like Peterson are telling us from a secular point of view is that our world is coming unhinged at a rapid pace and that unless we find some moral force grand enough, compelling enough to build our lives upon, that we are headed for a tragic implosion and people are lining up by the thousands to hear this message. Let's go to the third verse in our text. Proverbs 15, 33. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. And humility comes before honor. Indeed, the book opens with this challenge. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the same theme. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, the starting point, the text tells us, for a life of wisdom is acknowledging first and foremost that there is a source from which that wisdom comes and that source lies outside my own finite life. How do I make sense out of life? Where do I turn to to find wisdom? I turn to the one who is the source of all wisdom. What makes a good marriage? How do I raise my kids? What about money and debt and finances? Does the Bible say anything about these things? What about sexuality? The joy, the pleasure, the brokenness, the pain? The Bible speaks to all of these issues. And more often than not, it is counterintuitive to everything that we're hearing in the culture at large. And so we have incredibly important decisions to make. Will we heed the words of wisdom? And where do we find true wisdom? Will we surrender our lives to the white hot light of God's word being shone into our lives? Are we humble enough to admit that in so many areas of our lives where we have decided to make our own decisions, we've ended up with brokenness, hurt, pain. Are we willing to say, Lord, teach me, instruct me, Lord, train me? See, the text says the wise person listens to life-giving reproof while the fool despises wisdom. And the questions we have to ask are, which am I? Which are you? Forget about the specific topics for a moment. Get up out of the weeds. Forget about marriage and parenting and sex and work and money and all those things. Let's ask some bigger questions about the questions themselves before we ask the questions. The bigger, more important question is this. Do I desire wisdom? Do I want to be known as a wise person? Do I want to live among the wise, as this text says? Do I want to be known as a person who gives sound advice, rational, informed, logical, pragmatic, however you describe it? Do I want to be known as a person who has a track record of making good decisions? And if the answer is no, then end a discussion. No need for any further talk. But if the answer is yes, then move to the next question. Do I believe there's a source of wisdom? And do I believe that God himself is actually the source of all wisdom? 
But the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs says, is to fear the Lord. And not fear in the sense of terror. That's not what that word means. But fear in the sense of a reverential awe at his power, his might, his glory, his wisdom, his knowledge. In essence, saying as the children's song, God is so big and I'm small. God is infinite. I'm finite. God sees the eternal view. All I see is today. If the answer is no, again, that I don't believe there's an ultimate source, well then, end of discussion. But if it's yes, or even if it's maybe, then you move on to some other questions. And the questions have to be, well, then will I place my faith and trust in God's plan for the world? Will I take his word as truth and will I put it into practice? Have I come to the end of myself realizing that I can't figure out my own life? Will I receive the Holy Spirit's help. See, this question of reproof actually is a very, very important question because it goes to the very heart of the gospel. Because the gospel message starts with hard words. The gospel tells me straight up, my life is broken and I can't fix it. Now, the good news is, of course, there's a solution to that problem. And his name is Jesus Christ. But the first message is not a happy message, and many reject it right out. It confronts our pride head on on both fronts. What do you mean my life is a mess? And what do you mean I can't fix it, even if it is? And the second offense might even be greater than the first when we're told that the door into the kingdom is a very low door, and that you've got to humble yourself, specifically, I have to die. I have to be willing to lay my life down and die to my own agenda, my own plans, and my own desires in a word, a theological word, we must repent. We must turn around. We must change our ways. And that great commanding imperative at the heart of the gospel is this one word, repent. And it's a word that has never been popular, not in the first century at the writing of the New Testament, nor in our day. Repentance is not a popular message. And yet to repent and believe the gospel requires this frank acknowledgement that I was wrong. I was dead wrong. I was a rebel. I was an enemy. I was destined for God's wrath. But I've come to my senses and I'm repudiating that former way of life. Proverbs 15.33 Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. So a life of wisdom requires that we cultivate this heart of humility, a life of humility, a willingness to learn, a willingness to be taught. Our coaches rebuke us, our doctors correct us, our parents instruct us, and we grow wise. And so when it comes to the deepest and most important issues of our lives, the Bible, the Spirit, and the people of God are used to bring us life-giving correction. Oh God, would you give me a teachable heart? Oh God, would you give me the grace to humble myself in order to receive your truth? So let me just ask you a few questions as we close off. As you come to the word of God, do you come with an open heart and mind? Asking the spirit of God to instruct you and to make you wise unto life? Secondly, do you have a friend or two that you love and trust to whom you would say, I need you to speak into my life. I'm asking you as my friend, help sharpen me. 
Make me a better person. I'm asking you to tell me the truth about me, even if they're hard words. Do you have a friend or two like that? And finally, and most important, are you daily surrendering yourself to the empowering work of the Holy Spirit? See, this is a whole nother message, but Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll obey me. Now, you see, if you're like me, you hear those words and you know all too well how humanly impossible they seem for me to do that all the time. Yes, Jesus, I do love you, but I know that so often I don't obey. There's a war over my life and around my life and in my life and the desires for good and evil just seem like they're always present. But Jesus' words that could seem like heavy or crushing or even impossible, he doesn't end there, and this is important. If you love me, you'll obey me. And in the very next phrase, he says, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to help you. Oh, goodness. The Holy Spirit, will you attune my heart to your voice? Would you quicken my spirit to yours? Would you empower and equip me? It makes all the difference in the world. Give me ears to hear, eyes to see and a will to obey you, Lord. For with you are the words of life. With you is the path of wisdom. You are indeed the way, the truth, and the life. Oh God, let us grow not only in knowledge, but let us grow wise. Let me pray with you. Father, I pray for every person who's listening to this message this week or even later online if they're tuning in. Lord, help us to discern and understand that this path of foolishness and wisdom is a path on which you've actually given us a choice. That we can actually choose the path of wisdom or we can choose the path of foolishness. That as we grow in knowledge, as we understand your revelation, as we grow to know more of who you are and your plans for our life, that then we have this critical decision of whether or not we are actually going to heed those wise words. And so, Lord, we are asking for the empowerment of your spirit you promised you wouldn't leave us alone. You promised that you were going to your father's house, but that you would send us a helper, the spirit, and he would be the one who would enable us and empower us. And Lord, may this be true of us. Wherever we're living our lives, the neighborhoods, the workplaces, the families, the sports field, may we increasingly be known as men and women who are wise, men and women who are not foolish, and men and women who honor you in every area of our life. So Lord, we give these things to you for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name, amen.